Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it. Which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. On this episode, we talk to Dr. Carson Reed, Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Theology and Director of the Seibert Institute for Church Ministry at Abilene Christian University. He spent several decades in congregational ministry, and now he's a church consultant, helping churches to navigate a changing cultural landscape. And we'll talk about things like why young people are leaving the church and don't come back, and what exactly are ministers doing. I had a lot of fun talking to Dr. Reed, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Carson? Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you today. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, how about we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Hmm. Telling you about myself. Well, I'm uh, married. I've been uh, living in Abilene and teaching at ACU since 2012. So I'm going on eight years of, of uh, work as a professor in the Graduate School of Theology. My wife, Vicki, and I moved here from Atlanta, Georgia, where I was serving in congregational ministry. Um, before that, I spent 20 years of ministry in churches in Indianapolis, Indiana, so almost 30 years as a senior minister, senior pastor in congregations uh, before coming here. Um, Vicki and I have a family. <laughs> We've got some kids. Yeah. You want to hear about them? Sure, yeah. Uh, um, we've got uh, four, four grown children, um, and uh, they're doing all kinds of different things. They're up and gone now. One's actually a professor here at ACU. Another one's uh, serving as an Army officer in the U.S. Army. One's a, uh, a therapist, a counselor who went through one of our programs here at ACU, and uh, the fourth one, what is she doing? Uh, <laughs> she's uh, slowly taking over the world in a, a software company in Oklahoma City. <laughs> there Oklahoma. you go. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and how have you been a Christian all of your life? You've been mm. in the Churches of Christ all your life? How did that, how did that yeah. go for you? Yeah. Well, I, um, I was blessed to grow up in a family that was deeply Christian and, uh, and deeply rooted in the Stone Campbell uh, tradition. Uh, the story that uh, uh, actually my grandmother Reed uh, tells in her diary is of how her 
uh, grandfather was baptized by Alexander Campbell himself. So oh, the joke is in our family that we were pretty diehard Campbellites, um, which is not to say that I've not uh, wrestled some with our heritage, but um, it is what I've received, and I've been I've been blessed by that through the years. Yeah. Well, I would I would also love to hear more about how you've. You've kind of come into this pretty unique role. You work with the Cybert Institute, uh, church relations and church ministry. Could you yeah. tell me a little bit about yeah. that and the institute and what you do? Yeah, just as I was uh, coming in 2012, a longtime professor in the Graduate School of Theology, Charles Seibert, passed away. And uh, the university uh, said, we want to continue to um, live out a lot of what Charlie was doing with congregations. So an institute was launched in his name. Royce Money, past president of the university, uh, became the founding director and then within a year or so asked me if I would direct this newly this newly fledgling enterprise called the Cyber Institute for Church Ministry. Uh, so, uh, so for about six years now, I guess, seven, I've lost track of time. Uh, I've been directing the uh, the institute, which is a a broad array of programs and services and resources that are offered for church leaders. Um, that could be uh, anything as public and big as the annual summit conference that takes place every fall, or uh, an array of conferences that we hold across the country for lay leaders and congregations. Uh, sometimes called Elderlink, and sometimes it comes under other names. Um, we help place ministers. I think we helped 150 churches last year find a, a minister. Uh, a conservative count. We, we think there are probably a few more. Um, we do a lot of church consulting, and uh, we do some research that sort of bridges the academic side of being in a university like ACU um, with uh, congregational life. So... We do a lot of work with uh, healthy churches or helping churches reflect on what it means to be healthy and missionally focused. Uh, so uh, I could go on, but there's a, <laughs> a, you know, a wide array of things that take place that I get the honor of uh, networking with um, other faculty who are involved in this. And then we've got a great staff of people who are involved in a lot of different ways as well. Yeah. I Something I find so fascinating about your role in – in the Cyber Institute is you you spend a lot of time consulting churches and going and you get to kind of travel around and, and see what ministry in the churches of Christ looks like on the ground. Um, I'm I'm curious if you could speak to what what that's like. Uh, I don't think a well, whole the lot travel of travel or the church. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think just your experience with the churches. I, yeah, I don't yeah. think a lot of us get to get such a personal wide sampling of how the churches of Christ are doing and what we look like. Um, and and I, I think that's pretty unique. So mm. I'd, be, I'd be curious to yeah. just kind of hear your initial thoughts on uh, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so most weekends I am in some congregational context, either interim preaching or doing a weekend conference or working with leaders or um, uh, doing renewal uh, events within congregations. So – yeah, it's a sort of uh, churches of Christ generally are feeling the pain of what's happening broadly in North America. Um, I was meeting with uh, some folks from uh, Southern Baptist churches uh, back about three months ago over in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and they're they're seeing over a thousand churches 
close their doors every year. Uh, we're not seeing those kind of numbers, but we're not as big as Southern Baptist. Right. Uh, so, uh, but we are seeing churches close, or they're getting smaller, or they're in some state of decline. So, uh, so many of the churches that I'm in are often asking the questions about what does the future look like for us, and uh, those can be either very scary conversations. Uh, or they can be very hope-filled conversations. And uh, um, so it's sort of an honor to kind of walk along churches as they kind of wrestle again with what does it mean to be the people of God in our world and not just take for granted that, uh, you know, it's, I think it's easy to take for granted. You get up on Sunday morning, you go to church, and then you do your church thing, and then you go on with the rest of your life. Well, now maybe this business about being disciples of Jesus Christ uh, is a bigger thing than that, uh, or to do it, say it more communally, uh, maybe being a part of a community of people who have given themselves over to being like Jesus Christ uh, means more than just kind of rolling through the traditional motions. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to see churches take that on, and frankly, we're seeing a lot of new ecclesial forms. How's that for a big phrase? Yeah. Right? <laughs> ecclesial forms. Uh, uh, Take, take root as people uh, sort of rediscover uh, what it means to be the gospel in uh, our world. Yeah, and I'm, I'm encouraged to kind of hear some of the language you're using seems uh, – so I'm a fairly young person, but uh, even with my fairly limited experience in time with Christianity, I feel like – I have always been around the conversation of like, we're shrinking. What do Mm. we do? The young people aren't coming back. What do we Mm. do? Mm -hmm. Um, And I am encouraged by the language you're already using of of some folks taking this as kind of an opportunity for renewal or change or or not necessarily the sort of doom and gloom stuff that I think I still hear kind of floating around. And in that, I am I'm super curious to know a little bit more about what you have seen churches sort of regularly feel like they're dealing with, or what are the things they're sort of expressing to you that they're responding to? Sure, sure, yeah. And so I've uh, when I say this business of hopefulness, that's not every church, right? There's, sure, <laughs> there are plenty of uh, plenty of churches that sort of are much more willing to put their heads in the sand and uh, maybe this will go away or there's a lot of hand-wringing. And uh, I I see some of that hand-wringing too. And so if I'm hearing your question, it's like, how does that get expressed? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of churches are recognizing that they're getting uh, grayer, uh, that is older, Mm. and smaller. And uh, so a lot of churches are seeing just numerical decline. They're seeing uh, churches get uh, grayer. They're seeing uh, more and more young adults disappear. They, they come up through youth groups, and then they turn 18, and they go off to the university, and, but we may not see them anymore. And um, so, which is what we see largely in the larger realm of data, right? The, uh, very common to hear discussion about the nuns, uh, that is, not women who are Catholics <laughs> habits, but N-O-N-E-S, right, the nuns, that um, uh, that rise in re- religious disfiliation. Right. Uh, I was looking at some data this past weekend in a conference that I presented in 
Kentucky, and the uh, the number was somewhere just under about 40% of persons who are 18 to 29 are saying, well, we're sort of spiritual, but we're not affiliating with any particular religious tradition. And that's showing up in a lot of our churches, and that there's sort of a gap there. And so when I hear from church leaders, those are the kinds of things that they're really wrestling with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think I, anecdotally, I think I've, I've experienced some of that. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, I'm imagining a lot of people have some pretty in, maybe intense opinions on why that sort of thing is happening. I'm curious to, to hear what are the things you hear most often. Well, yeah. So there's, um, <laughs> there's a, a, a lot of things I think floating around. There's some of it's just pure sociological reality about the world we uh, live in. Uh, sociologists have noted, for example, that uh, young adults – walk away from their faith, have always walked away from faith for a little while when they turn 18 and go leave home. But 25 or 30 years ago, by the time they were 21 or 22, they typically had uh, married and had begun a family. And marriage and family tend to bring people back into conversations about faith. But in our current situation, people may wait till they're 28 or 30 or 31 or uh, my 33-year-old daughter and 31-year-old son just got married uh, a year ago. So they reflect this sort of delaying these markers, these social markers of, I don't know whether you, I don't want to, they're adults, but we sometimes mark them with adulthood, this idea of getting married or starting a family. And so often if young adults are waiting that long to make those kinds of moves, uh, they may be staying away from church or religious institutions for a decade or longer. And by then, they've sort of forgot how to make their way back into that kind of world. Or when they do, it just seems like it's changed so much in that decade that it seems to disconnect with their life. And how does it make sense or meaning of life? And that uh, so that's social. That's sort of a social factor, but that then gets tied into other cultural factors that I think are um, maybe at work in our world with what we might call secularity. Okay, say say a little bit more about secularity. Yeah. So, uh, which is not a new word, but it's sort of uh, reframing maybe for us today, uh, thinking about uh, the world we inhabit. Um, let's see. How would I get to this? Um, well, one to say that our North American culture has moved to the place where um, maybe for the first time, this is sort of scary to say this, for the first time in human history, that sounds a little, <laughs> little bold, doesn't it? But, uh, but we're kind of at a place where f- for the first time perhaps maybe in human history where uh, a person – our community of people can live without God being a part of the equation, uh, that God is sort of superfluous in our modern, ultra-modern, post-modern, whatever age world we're living in, uh, that uh, we're living in uh, an, a, a world that Charles Taylor, a, a Canadian philosopher, would say is this uh, age of eminence, that Everything is immediate. It's close to us. We can figure it all out for ourselves. There's no need for God to figure out what's happening in our world. We can explain it through 
social science or science science. And, uh, and so with that, uh, we, God's not a part of the equation. So if that's the case, then church doesn't matter at all or even faith doesn't really matter at all. And so this sort of secular environment, secular culture, uh, is another big factor in what's happening, I think, and when we start talking about Christianity and faith and uh, spirituality in North American contexts. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about – I can see the social forces that kind of move in at work and that when we shift the conversation to more uh, of the kind of thing that Charles Taylor talks about, this seems to shift into a sort of conversation about philosophy, I guess, or mm-hmm. ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's fairly obvious or fairly reasonable to say that that – social factors and ideological factors are, are interlinked. Mm. But I think, um, especially with folks that I know who would identify as non-religious folks, um, their reasons, at least sort of self-diagnosed, appear to them to be mostly ideological. Mm. I don't think they look at it and say, well, it's probably because I got married later. Right. <laughs> I think they probably no. say something like, well, I don't, I don't buy this right. anymore. Yeah. So another factor in this secular culture is uh, uh, sort of related to this project that started eh, 500 years ago, (laughs) the the Renaissance, right, and this rediscovery of knowledge and uh, the rise of reason to the point now, hence several hundred years later, we move into a modern world and now maybe into what some would call a postmodern world. Uh, where uh, the thing that uh, acts as authority for me is not the government, it's not the church, um, it's not a text like the Bible, or it's, um, or maybe not even a philosophy like, you know, you know, pick your f- favorite philosopher, uh, um, Sigmund Freud or Karl Marx or whoever. Uh, who determines what is is me. Uh, the idea of autonomy, mm. that the human being gets to pick what is right for me. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we've kind of moved so deeply into that kind of environment that uh, I become my own self-determining person. And, uh, and that's another factor that's playing itself out in all of this. So, uh, so yeah, uh, <laughs> I, you're exactly right. Uh, uh, so, as human beings who are autonomous, then we get to pick what is meaningful to me and what's not meaningful, and we get to determine that for ourselves. And uh, we'll pick a little bit of Bible or we'll pick a little Buddha. You know, we can go pick mm-hmm. and choose whatever voices we want to hear in the world and say, yeah, I like a little of this and I like a little of that. And we kind of put together our own way of understanding meaning for ourselves. Uh, and that works pretty well until it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> for our lives. Um, and that's what uh, Taylor says, you know, would remark that uh, this autonomous person uh, that we buffer ourselves up, he, he talks, talks about the buffered self, the self that puts a wall up to protect oneself, uh, that works until it, 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 it doesn't. And uh, when it doesn't, then we're, we're kind of left Oh, well, where is meaning found? Mm. And uh, we have this sort of 
lapse of meaning or this search for meaning and a longing, even in a world where God doesn't exist uh, in terms of, you know, I'm going to be a secular person, where I kind of wish maybe or maybe I kind of long for the fact that maybe he might exist or that maybe there would be something transcendent or mysterious or enchanted about the world. Uh, I'm rambling on. That's okay. Let me drive one more point, uh, Eric, in this. Uh, For example, it's not uncommon even for the most secular persons to get up on an early morning and walk out onto the beach at the ocean and go, wow, there's there's something so incredibly beautiful about this. It's like as, as if almost there was a God that created this. There's something beyond me that still catches my breath. And it's that longing or that longing and hope for enchantment that uh, I think is sort of the clue that maybe our little autonomous selves aren't quite enough after all. Mm. That uh, is a, a place where uh, persons of faith have got some work to do. And, uh, or it's a place where persons of faith may have an opportunity to talk to persons who don't have faith because we're both – we're all looking for a bit of mystery in our lives, I think. I, I, I mean I certainly would – put myself in that category. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, so, so we get to this place, right, where we're, we're mostly secular, using kind of air quotes there. Um, mm-hmm. Again, sort of speaking anecdotally, I don't quite have the data uh, that you probably do to back some of this up, but I know um, I've seen a lot of folks who would identify as non-religious mostly aim that towards non-institutional sort of forms of belief where I am comfortable saying there's something out there. I'm willing to look at the beach and and kind of have this sense of wonder about this world that exists beyond me. But eh, the church um, and not necessarily just the Christian church, but maybe – uh, institutional Hindu. religion. Yeah, however however the institutions right. have fallen for sure. however many thousands of years they've been around, I'm just not on board for that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about what that means, especially for ministers in this context, mm. because I think, I think the, the sort of, I don't know, caricaturized situation is you have this staunch atheist person that says there is no God and you can't prove to me that there is one and you're stupid for believing in one. And then the, the very pious, very heroic Christian person would have all the right sort of answers to combat this very, uh, this view that's very on the other end of the spectrum from them. Right. When in reality, I think most of us are encountering folks who are like, yeah, you know, sure. There might be a God out there. That's fine. But yep. I'm not I'm not willing to put my foot down on what that means. And I'm fine with experiencing a sense of deeper meaning without this institution that's done all these horrible things or hurt the people I love or hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a much more difficult position for a minister to be in mm. to to sort of advocate for the gospel in a way that's responsible and – respectful toward maybe past experiences with institution. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know what the question is behind that, but I'm, I am curious to That's hear a, what you think about where the minister sits in that sort of context. Yeah, you're raising a several great 
I think, great things to think about <laughs> or reflect on, Eric. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. First thing is to say that uh, it's easy for us to sort of build this false dichotomy of the uh, thoroughgoing atheist on one side and the goody-two-shoes Christian on the other. Um, uh, but that creates a sort of a false reality that, that you're recognizing in your, your question. And yes, I think there's something, it's much more complex than that, that uh, many secular persons would assert their autonomy and assert uh, that I can live my life as if there is no God and yet have this longing for enchantment or a wish or a hope or a sense that maybe the world actually is haunted mm. with uh, something <laughs> transcendent. And I think, uh, I think if we're uh, real, many of us who are Christians also know that there are things in life that we simply can't fully, fully figure out, right? Mm. There, is, uh, um, there are some things we don't have always answers to. There's a grayness to the world in, in many ways. And so uh, to your, your question about where does the minister stand in all of that, since we are, after all, in a uh, – a seminary here. We're talking about <laughs> right. a graduate school where people go to train for ministry. Um, uh, actually, it's kind of an exciting place. It, it's scary, right, <laughs> and uncertain. But also, I want to say it's also kind of interesting to uh, to be in a position where uh, the word that uh, ministers have to offer is is a word about gospel. Uh, that maybe it's even it's even in what seems to be the absence of God that God is showing up in our world, and uh, and that maybe the work of being a minister is in part announcing that reality, um, of embodying it in the kind of life and character of one who has um, uh, embraced the gospel. Uh, as their own. And in some way, there's a communal dimension to this that uh, I cannot uh, – Christianity is a very communal thing, right? Mm-hmm. You don't just get to be a Christian all by yourself. Though in North America, there's been plenty of people who tried this. I was going to say, <laughs> well, now hang on. Yeah, person. wait a minute. I want to be I want to be different, just like everybody else, <laughs> and so we want our rigid, uh, rigorous individuality. But uh, if we get kind of deep into the Christian tradition, we recognize there's something about the community of faith that matters, about a community of of, of folk who have given themselves over to another kind of way of living, uh, that uh, uh, where uh, we don't lose ourselves, but we now are something a part of something bigger than ourselves in which the Spirit of God is at work in the midst of. And so, um, uh, so yes, the, the world of the minister has changed a great deal in the last hundred years. There was a time where the minister was seen as the one who was the arbiter of all that was wise and good about the Christian faith and seen in the community as sort of the, um, the, the person who had answers to things, where uh, maybe today it's more the person who shows up and simply quietly bears witness to the possibility that God may show up in our world and um, uh, to bear witness to that. And uh, that uh, sounds like a rather interesting thing to do with one's life, actually. Yeah, I there's something very attractive to me about that quiet witness. And a, a part of that has sort of led me 
to and been fed by my experience as a chaplain, mm. uh, where that does tend to be the sort of role that you fill uh, more often than not. Um, but I am curious where you've talked a bit already about how the job of the minister has changed. And uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, the sort of modernity, post-modernity shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of what I, what, I'm, what I would love to hear you talk about is how, how our relationship with certainty has changed. Because mm. y- you talk about the minister being the person who sort of used to be the person that people went to for answers. The Bible answer man. Right. Um, but now we live in a world where even broaching the topic of what the answer is mm-hmm. and if that answer is knowable <laughs> is mm-hmm. part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how's our relationship with certainty changed? Yeah, well, there's uh, – we live in a time where there are various responses to that question from a Christian perspective, mm. right? One is to say, no, it's all quite certain. Mm. Um, the Bible means what it says, and it says what it means, and our job is to faithfully uh, bear that out. And there is a, a can be a tendency to think that uh, our job is just to provide – that the, part of the job of the minister is to provide certainty for uh, all kinds of things <laughs> and uh, that comes up in life. And um, um, But that – uh, and certainly there are ministers who live that kind of life out. I think I would offer a different kind of posture. It's I would offer more of a posture that says it's not that somehow or another we've got an, um, that we've got it all figured out. Um, at least I don't have it all figured <laughs> out. But the posture or stance that I want to take is that uh, – that God is present in our world, um, and I'm on a path toward living into that reality, um, and I'm going to invite others to join me in that journey. Um, now, I'm not doing that timidly, and I'm not doing it timidly or wringing my hands like, well, I kind of hope this all works out to the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think the, the that both Scripture and the tradition of the church offers us 2,000 years of <laughs> witness of people who have lived the same kind of way, uh, having to kind of figure out what does it mean to be Christian really in every generation. Um, it's not uh, – we're not the first generation to be – we may be the first generation to have to deal with uh, God being sort of an extra, but we're not the first generation to have to wrestle with cultural issues and what does it mean to be Christian when there are other ideas floating around out there? Uh, the first four centuries of the church was full of pluralism and its own form of forms of paganism, and, and we could call it a sort of secularism. Um, uh, and so we're not alone in that. So, so it's a posture of humility um, um, that is anchored in uh, – this deep conviction that God does show up in our world and uh, that even when he seems like he's absent, he is present. And, uh, and part of our task is to act faithfully even in, it, in his seeming absence uh, becomes um, a part of all of this. And related to that, and I 
I'm rambling too much here. <laughs> uh, the rate to that, I think, in some ways is um, this is where a theologian by the Andrew Root would talk about a lot is that uh, it really comes through relationality uh, that this comes across. It's not um, these are not just ideas. It's lived. It's it comes out of experience by walking along with other people that uh, faith gets engendered. Our own faith gets engendered through that, and we engender faith in others. And so it's not a disembodied thing. It's a very incarnated reality of walking and living with people uh, on this humble journey toward um, God's preferred future um, uh, as we try to bear witness to the gospel. Mm. No, I think that's I think that's great. I, I, I think the sort of comeback I'm sensing for what you're talking about is uh, you, you talk about, you know, not doing this timidly, but doing it humbly. Mm-hmm. But there is there is a sort of vein, especially in North America to our tradition, uh, that that says we proclaim boldly the, the sure. truths of the gospel. And what you're proposing sounds a lot like something that maybe another religious community could sort of potentially like we could all work together to walk in this sort of way. Um, what, what do you, how does this become distinctly Christian hmm. in the way that like a sort of broadly spiritual worldview isn't? Right. Well, one of those ways is that uh, the Christian faith is a uh, earthy bodily kind of thing. And, um, what we need desperately are people who um, kind of take seriously the doctrine of incarnation. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> that uh, talking about uh, Christianity or talking about Christian faith isn't something we just talk about, but it becomes embodied in our lives and it becomes embodied in communities. And that's pretty serious stuff. That's, uh, we're talking about holiness here. We're talking about <laughs> discipleship. We're talking about uh, taking seriously baptism or the Lord's Supper and how we um, – those are not just things we talk about, but they're things that actually we allow to shape all of our lives. Um, it means that um, – it also means, too, in terms of this idea of boldness, I, I think there's a boldness to dec- – there is a boldness to declare that God is present in our world it takes a little bit of guts to say that sometimes when it seems like he might not be uh, in our world, uh, right? Um, and uh, and yet that's our that's our our claim. Um, and so I, I would uh, I would say that our our declaration is bold, our embodiment is bold, our commitment to communal living is strong, um, and uh, but. But that kind of those kind of commitments do not negate uh, the capacity should not negate our capacity to walk along tenderly with others, or to practice a sense of humility uh, about uh, being able to let other people speak and us listen. Uh, uh, the sixty four dollar word for that would be a sort of reflexivity <laughs> or reciprocity. One another one <laughs> that is a part of um, uh, being attentive, attentive to God being present even in other 
other people that we meet, people who um, may not be making Christian claims. Mm. Uh, where would we find something of God there? Um, I was thinking there that I don't know how I got to thinking about it, but this is goes back. I'm going to date myself to 1995, I think it was. <laughs> Joan Osborne had a great song called If God Was One of Us, mm. Just a Stranger on a Bus. I don't, this, yeah. this, this song is, I think, made its way through uh, multiple generations of culture, I hope. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it was 95 uh, when she first came out with that. But that song is, a, is the crying heartache of humankind, uh, this longing that, you know, is there a God? And what if, what if he experienced life kind of like I do? And, uh, and uh, that, that longing <clears throat> um, is, a, is an existential sort of longing that I think as Christian people, we share that longing too. And uh, lo and behold, we've received, not that we went and made this up, but we received through scripture and tradition a, a word about that. Fact of the matter is, he is. He has. Uh, he is one of us. And uh, being able to uh, to uh, be humble enough and open enough and attentiveness to our culture and to others to listen for uh, those existential points of longing, I think we resonate with them. And I think we'll find that uh, there is a word that we can offer into those spaces. Mm-hmm. No, I kind of really like I felt that uh, when talking about this sort of existential longing of, man, I really hope that God's closer than he seems. Yeah. Um, No, I think that's real. Yeah. I don't know. There's something powerful about that. So with the time we have left, what I want to do is focus on the the task of the minister, right? And you and I have talked a bit uh, uh, before we had microphones in our face about there there are a myriad of helping professions now. And, and and I would say, from at least my perspective, a lot of those for our betterment. Uh, I think I think counseling and therapy has has made huge strides in the way that we understand and interact with our inner worlds and other people. Um, social workers are incredible people who do yes. incredible work. Yes. Um, but they they are these professions have sort of begun to occupy spaces that the ministers sort of used to occupy. And now we defer to professionals, or at least we should be deferring to professionals, I think, for some of this stuff. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So what, we're in this context, things are are shifting and changing around us. We have a little bit of an idea of what, where the minister stands with that. Practically speaking, the minister's task is... What? Where do we? Where do we go from there? Yeah, it's almost as if uh, uh, the minister's job gets smaller and smaller mm. with more and more of these various professions. So we have therapists to help us with our emotions, or we have, uh, or with changing our practices, and on and on we go. Yeah, I think the uh, I think one way to think about that is uh, if I could take a little bit of a detour and then come right back into that <laughs> is to say that uh, ministry is rooted and what we might call um, practical theology, meaning, in, in, meaning um, that um, the work of both a practical theologian and a minister is always coming out of some real lived experience. And, um, and 
uh, it's out of that lived experience that we begin to ask some basic questions about what's going on, why is it going on, what is God up to in all of this, and, uh, and, and then how might we respond to that in some constructive way. Well, that, that sort of kind of engagement is not unlike what maybe a social worker might do, and it's possible uh, that a therapist might do that, though uh, uh, um, a licensed professional counselor may be focusing more upon a person's emotional state or uh, relational engagements with a spouse or that sort of thing. I think the distinctive thing in all of that for ministers is the minister is the only one who is asking the question, what is God up to in all of this? Uh, uh, what what is happening here that uh, might uh, lead us on a quest to see what God is up to or um, what might be a path toward wholeness and relationship and vitality and meaning in light of God's presence in a, in a person's life? And um, that's an incredibly significant question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that's, again, often in a secular world, that question doesn't often get asked by these various helping professions um, necessarily. They're after other important questions. Now, what is my emotional state? What is my relationship with my spouse like? Uh, am I using good parenting methods with my children or with my parents, <laughs> am I? You know, how am I dealing with elderly parents? Or you know, there's a whole host of social and uh, relational uh, and personal dynamics that are incredibly important that the helping professions help us greatly with. But who's asking the question? What's God up to in all of this? And uh, and yes, uh, I think that's an incredibly important question, uh, even for the. Even for the person who might be wondering whether or not there is a God, mm. uh, it might be worth pausing and asking, if there is a God, then what might he be up to uh, in this moment? Uh, what, what is, uh, uh, what's, uh, what's going on in, in, that kind of, in that kind of place? And so uh, the minister is the, actually the most free of all professions to be able to step into a person's life and do that. Um, uh, as a minister, you can see somebody at the grocery store and stop and say, hey, how are things going for you? Whereas the therapist is going to maybe nod but move right on because their professional frameworks, it, this is not the place to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, so the minister has incredible freedom to walk alongside people and ask the one question that nobody else is going to ask. And I think that matters a great deal. Uh, it's the same kind of question a minister asks when they preach or when they are helping a church wrestle with uh, stuff communally. You know, what's, what's God up to in all of this? And uh, not that we have the answers. In fact, there oftentimes we don't. But uh, the question still needs to be asked, and we still need to wrestle with some answers, it seems to me. No, I think I would, I would agree with that. I think there's something in the, in the wrestling that is uh... – healthy for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what do we, to, to work towards wrapping up, I, I want to know what you think are some of maybe two or three of the things that ministers today should be engaging with or focusing on or, or spending more time with than maybe we do. Hmm. 
more time with them than maybe we are. Well, um, I would say that the currency that ministers work with is the currency of hope. And um, that hope is not in ourself or in others, but it's in the hope of God's action in the world by the power of his spirit. So there should be a hopefulness there. I think another thing that ministers have at their disposal is a sense of God's purpose or mission in the world that uh, that uh, history is not standing still, even if it looks like our own uh, social context are in deep disarray, that shouldn't deter us from uh, the conviction that comes from the witness of Scripture that God is actually uh, in some in the transforming work. And, uh, and so where do I find places of God's action and transformation and uh, pay attention uh, to that? And I, I think the third thing that I think ministers ought to pay attention to is relationships, real relationships, uh, to be open um, themselves in their own uh, interpersonal relationships, but recognize that it's through uh, relationships with others that um, uh, faith is engendered and life, uh, we find places for life to flourish. And it's where we're going to discover what God is up to in ourselves and in others. So that may be a rather uncharacteristic sort of list. But those would be some things that I think ministers need to, to pay attention to. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll just stop there. <laughs> that's no, that's perfect. I think those are, those are fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Carson. Uh, to wrap us up, I would love to ask you, do you think seminary is a scary thing? Ah, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it could be scary. I, I would tend to think about it if I were, uh, I remember when I first went off to seminary, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get to sort of find the things that I believe reaffirmed. And uh, what I actually had happen was to find that the things that I believe were uh, rather thin <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that they were actually rather fragile and that uh, they needed to sort of be kind of broken apart so that a deeper, thicker sort of understanding could emerge. Um, and so, um, so I came out of actually came on the other side of seminary. Came out uh, loving and believing in the Bible more, and uh, uh, understanding, appreciating history more, and realizing that I really didn't uh, understand the, the depth and the import that culture and being a, uh, aware of cultural realities meant, and uh, a whole host of other things. So. Uh, it was a little intimidating going in, I guess, um, but I found uh, seminary to be absolutely indispensable for surviving 30 years in congregational leadership. Uh, uh, if I hadn't had that, I think I'd have blown out or burned out very, very quickly, which I can say, as the director of Cyber Institute, <laughs> happens to ministers <laughs> who don't go to seminary often, mm. uh, if especially younger persons, 21 or 22, who make their way into ministry, we lose a whole lot of them because uh, in the thick and rough and tumble of congregational life as a youth minister or a, uh, or a preaching minister, whatever role playing, uh, without being able to have some really strong theological and biblical anchoring uh, and a little bit of maturity that comes with a couple more years of working through some seminary education, um, it, it can be a pretty pretty difficult thing to navigate. 
actually, it's pretty difficult even with seminary. <laughs> but uh, but that, those three years, for actually five years for me, uh, <laughs> were, were very important years uh, in forming me so that a lifetime of ministry might ensue. And that's what I would want to – if I had a seminary or prospective seminary student sitting in front of me, um, Eric, I would say, yeah, uh, those three or four years of investment are well worth the 30 or 40 years uh, that lie ahead of you in terms of service to um, bearing gospel and uh, serving churches and communities of faith. Uh, uh, it's worth every bit of the energy that it takes to go through that uh, to give you the things that you're going to need to survive and to thrive uh, for God's sake in our world. Mm. Well, Carson, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really loved having you. It's been great, Eric. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about things that matter. Anytime. (laughs) Okay. The world is changing. There's no denying that. And there are even things that you should be concerned about. And it would be really easy to hunker down and shore up and hold out to the last man. But that's not the task of the minister. The minister is not someone with all the answers. And you certainly don't become a minister for the safety and security. The minister is one who asks the important questions, even when the answers are elusive. The minister is the one who deals in hope when other people say it's hopeless. And the minister is the one who's willing to follow God wherever God goes. There is no magic formula. There is no one-size-fits-all. Ministry has always found life in creative change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KACU for providing the studio space and all of this wonderful equipment. I'm your host, Eric Massey. Until next time.